And guten Morgen. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. It is Friday morning, the 28th of October, 2016. And you have Jacob and Zane on the line here, um, bringing you the latest in radical news and um, what's happening on the streets, really. <laughs> okay, nice. And uh, acknowledgements, uh, of course, you. We are coming at you from the traditional lands of the um, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and sovereignty was never ceded, and uh, this always was, and always will be Aboriginal land, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and future. I guess um, uh, many probably know that um, the council elections had um, happened last Saturday, although most of the results um, for the majority of the council wards won't be known until Friday um, due to the fact that um, most council um, elections are held by postal vote. Um, But there are two um, councils that do attendance voting, and we have a pretty good idea of the results. Um, Those councils are the the Council City of Yarra or Council of Yarra, um, Yarra Yarra City Council and um, Moreland City Council. Um, so in terms of the results, it's um, pretty interesting in terms of um, in terms of left wing politics. Um, the Greens' vote had a huge surge um, in the Victoria Council elections, based in both Moreland and um, Yarra. With um, in the city of Yarra, the Greens looked set to win, re, um, win three of their seats with a potential fourth. Um, in Moreland Council, the Greens got um, Moreland Council Mayor Samantha Ratnam with the Greens. Um, this vote more than doubled since 2012 elections, with the high-profile candidate getting, um, as reported in the Age, over 5,000 votes. Um, over 5,000 votes with 55.37% of the share. Mm. Um, that puts them in line to um, because. The Greens had run a team of councillors, um, three councillors for the South Ward of Moreland. Um, South Ward is um, the area of Brunswick and, and East Brunswick. Um, that means they'll get um, be getting a, definitely have matched the quota for a second councillor. They just needed over 50%. Mm. Um, they needed only 25%. Um, in the North East Ward, um, Natalie Wood also um, had a high vote with over 20 22%. Um, percent. Mm. But I guess um, moving on further to the left, um, so, <laughs> um, Socialist Alliance councillor um, Sue Bolton received also a very um, strong vote, um, mm. le- at least 13% in first preference votes. Um, that puts her just behind um, Natalie Wood of the Greens. Um, we actually don't know who is actually the only person we know for sure who has gotten elected is Natalia Wood because um, she's, she's got, reached, a quota. got a quota. Yeah, um, but there are four positions um, to be elected, um, mm. so we'll be finding out the final results of um, whether Sue Bolton uh, is elected or and the others um, um, this Friday when the res- um, when they're going to be I think figuring out the preferences, how the preferences flow, and everything. Um, so, yeah, but um, I definitely think uh, in terms it's a, a great result um, for for the left in terms of the city of Moreland. But in um, the city of Yarra, um, socialists had an even stronger vote. Um, the socialist, um, Stephen Jolly, um, they ran uh, a t- uh, in three different wards of the city of Yarra, um, and Stephen Jolly got over 
40% of the vote, um, which is pretty impressive. Um, there is um, some questioning on whether they would be able to get a second councillor, but they will need to get at least over 50% of the vote. Um, Yet again, just just like the Moreland City Council elections, we'll be finding out this Friday whether we know that fact for sure, um, because um, that's that's where the preference allocation that is going to be figured out. In the other wards um, of um, Yarra, um, they got over um, the socialists got over 12.5% in the ward that represents Fitzroy North um, slash Carlton North, um, over 10% in Richmond. Um, and of course, over 40, 33% to 40% in the Fitzroy Collingwood slash Abbotswood slash Clifton Hill kind of area, mm. which is where Stephen Jolly um, was elected and represented. Mm. Um, I guess um, adding up all those results together, um, it brings quite an exciting invocation for that particular area. Basically, for that area, at least one in five people voted socialists. Um, and of course, even more significant is um, coming out whether or not they'll get a second councillor, what this means for the city of Yarra and the council is they have nine councillors and basically with three, three Greens elected and one socialist, it basically means there's a socialist Green majority on the council. Um, or there could be, uh, and of course there's a possibility that there could be a fourth Greens councillor or Nestra socialist councillor. I don't, I think actually in terms of um, competition, it's basically actually competition between the Greens getting a fourth councillor and the social scheme, so it could be either or. Mm. Well, we'll find out um, for sure this Friday. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, inter- um, interesting. In more, unf- um, what I'll say, unfortunate news. Uh, Unsavory. In the city of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, in the city of Melbourne, you had um, some progressive alternatives running, like Phil Cleary. Yeah, how did Phil go? Uh, I don't, we don't know at this point, um, but he, at this, all I know about the City of Melbourne elections, as has been reported in the media, is that um, the Liberal Party, Robert Doyle, is currently leading the polls, mm. um, probably set to re-win another term. Um, so, um, but I guess we'll be find out the final results probably this Friday, um, because that is a postal vote, not an attendance vote Um um, council, so we right. won't know. So it's 100% postal in Melbourne? Yeah, pretty yeah. sure. Right. Uh, but I, I kind of find it interesting that probably the most progressive um, councils seem to be um, attendance voting. Um, I wonder if that's a coincidence or not, because attendance voting does give you the more capacity to, you know... Interact. Interact face-to-face. Yeah. Um, but I guess it also has a negative... Um, the, the, the downside to it is in terms of small parties is that um, the big parties have more resources to be able to do the face-to-face campaign. But I guess it still shows there is a benefit to it either way. And I haven't mm. really seen... There hasn't been a case of a socialist councillor elected in in a council election that was purely postal vote at right. this point. So we don't know. I w- don't want to make a too grand scientific claim yet because um, we don't know for sure. <laughs> but that is kind of interesting. So, so yes, and in terms of um, what other news has been happening, um, and probably the most significant thing that's um, been Yes. Oh, do you have any news, Zane? Actually, I'll ask Zane a question. Do you have any news you want to share with us? News, news, news. Um, oh, 
No, not, not particularly. Um, just to say that there's, um, I have a couple of friends on Facebook who either knew or were friends with one of those people that was killed on the Gold, Gold Coast at mm. uh, Dreamworld. So that was, um, yeah, really sad to hear. And, um, yeah, it would be interesting to see what this inquest by the, uh, this investigation by the police mm. shows up. Um, well, in sort of tragic news, there's actually, um, although I don't know all the specific details, there's been quite a, um, a high number of deaths in um, deaths on workplaces occurring recently, mm. with probably at least five in the past week across different states. Mm. And of course, um, in terms of um, why it's going, it all um, goes back to sort of unionism and sort of workplace kind of safety issues. Mm. Um, you have the Turnbull government um, trying to push down this ABCC um, down and trying to attack, it generally has been on the attack on unions, um, but of course you, when it comes to basic things like workplace safety, um, then you need, um, unions need to be given, you know, powers to be able to do basic sort of safety audits and um, investigations. Mm. As, but if there's laws that prevent them, prevent union delegates or union organisers from visiting or work sites, then it makes it much more um, harder. For sure. Yeah, I was um, reading, I, I haven't finished it yet, but I was reading Framework of Flesh, that uh, book by Humphrey McQueen about the construction industry and trade unionism in the industry, and he's basically saying... There's a constant pressure from the from management to work faster, get the project done. The quicker you can get it done, the bigger the profit margin is going to be for the boss. And there's an inverse relationship between how much the, the kind of balance of forces means that the boss can push people and safety on site. So the more you're in a rush, the less safe it is, the more that the union can say, let's work at a steady pace and not go crazy and run around like headless chooks on a dangerous work site. And the more that the union can say, hey, there's something dangerous. We need to stop, fix this, and make sure that it doesn't happen again. So the more power that the union has to do those things, the safer the site will be. And the more constricted the union is or the, the weaker the union is, the more people are going to be dying on site. And uh, so, yeah, there is the ABCC, but there's also a balance of forces thing. So as as union membership sort of declines, it's natural that you would see more deaths, more injuries on workplaces when the union is strong, kind of parallel to whatever the laws of the day are. That's, that's when you're going to see safer work sites. So... Yeah, if you're out there, join your union. If you're not, probably a lot of 3CR listeners, I think, would be union members anyway. But mm. uh, if you're not, join <laughs> and get your friends to join and get them to get their friends to join. <laughs> Unless maybe you're, um, there'll probably be a bit more hesitation if the union is STA. Oh, uh, <laughs> but, of course, uh, my personal opinion is I still would argue it's probably important to be part of your union regardless of whether regardless of whether what criticisms you could make of the leadership and how it operates. Well, that's it. The, the construction union, the BLF, which famously led the Greenbeans movement in the 1970s and, and 80s, that was like the SDA before the, uh, the union 
leadership was captured by a rank-and-file group. So they turned it from being a bosses union or a, a yellow union into a really activist union that represented the members. So, hmm. And I think that's what will happen to the SDA. It's got to happen at some point. Yep. Got to kick out the stooges running the show yep. and actually make it a fighting retail workers union. Yep. And I think we've, um, we've reported previously on there's been some um, fascinating developments in terms of um, some rank-and-file unions being able to sort of make some real sort of gains in the union and really sort of challenge the sort of bureaucracy of the SDA leadership. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, socialist alternative comrades doing some good stuff in the SDA. It's good. Okay. Um, I think we've got um, at least... Two minutes until our first interview, um, so it might be time to play a quick announcement. Indeed. Yeah, we're going to be talking to Andrew Bunting shortly from Climate Action Moreland uh, about climate and renewables and local government elections in Moreland because Climate Action Moreland are doing some stuff there. All right. You're listening to 3CR. All right. You're listening to 3CR. It's Friday morning, the 28th of October. Uh, we've got Jacob in the studio, myself, I'm Zane. And we've got Andrea Bunting on the line from Climate Action Moreland. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Zane and Jacob. Hello, Andrea. Hi. Uh, so we wanted to talk to you this morning about a few things. Um, well, first things first, we were just talking about local government elections and could you tell us a bit about what Climate Action Moreland got up to in terms of, I guess, relating to and nudging the uh, Moreland election in a more climate-conscious direction? Certainly. Yes, well, this time we didn't run a candidates forum. We do that regularly for the state and federal election, but we decided instead we would survey them and uh, all candidates, which we did without... Um, we didn't give them questions to answer that, you know, to tick boxes because we felt that would just be uh, ga- um, helping specific parties. So we asked them all just to write a paragraph about what they would be want- pushing for in the climate and, and environmental areas on council. And we put that up on our website. And we were astonished at the responses. We, You know, people, we, you can see how many people are looking at this. So we, th- we had 6,000 views. Um, hmm. over the course of the election. Most of them were on the day of the election or the day before, <laughs> of course. Um, and another one of our members, John Englart, also did some specific um, analysis around uh, North East Ward, which got uh, several thousand views in Faulkner. So it looks like people are, at, are actually seeking out information on the candidates and they knew, well... Maybe they Googled, <laughs> but uh, we were the place that uh, was providing that information. Yeah, nice work. It's good, yes. Yeah, good to see that, uh, yeah, that so many people read it. But, uh, yeah. And what did you think of the uh, council? I know we haven't heard the f- sort of finished results yet, but uh, I know that you've uh, been somewhat uh, involved in... Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, it was uh, phenomenal with the... Um, uh, vote for the Greens. I live in the south ward of Moreland, um, and the Greens there, they've ended up with 50, over 50% uh, after all the other post and votes have come in and so on. Um, but, of course, uh, Sue Bolton, who's been a 
fantastic help for Climate Action Morland. She's looking really good, especially for somebody who's only in their first term. She, her, and with 20 candidates, her result of nearly 13% is quite amazing. Mm. Yeah, it was a so massive field. We hope to get her back. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it'd be good. Uh, more greens on council, most likely Sue Bolton back on there. Yeah. Continue shaking things up and leading yeah. the way at a local government level. Yes, we'll see what happens. So it'll, quite, it'll be quite a mixed bag, I think. Well, you know, <laughs> well, I think Labor uh, might get four. four. Um, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, four or five, I think. Hmm. Yes. Um, now, on to a slightly different topic. Um, some weeks ago, there was that massive storm in South Australia. There was blackouts, and a bunch of conservatives came out and went on the attack and said, look, these blackouts show why we should um, stick with fossil fuel generation and move at a... Um, no pun intended, glacial pace towards <laughs> renewables uptake. Uh, other people have said, no, no, the whole issue here is that transmission towers got blown over in the wind. Mm. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the fact that there's a bunch of wind farms and some of them turned off for safety reasons. Um, and I've seen some of your posts on social media and you're kind of saying, well... There are issues with renewables, and we do need to do some things differently. Um, but yeah, can, can you tell us a bit more? You know, what's your, what do you think about this whole question of 100% renewables and and blackouts and all of this stuff? Yeah, well, certainly we we do need to move rapidly to 100% renewables, and it's not a straightforward matter. Um, you know, I've done a fair bit of work with wind power. Uh, I, I wrote a thesis on wind power some years ago, so um, I was, you know, certainly aware of a lot of the issues that around wind. Um, now, the cr critics of wind focused on its intermittency, which is the thing that everybody knows about, um, and that means it's, you know, it varies uh, quite substantially just depending on where the wind is blowing or not. But that's not the main uh, things that occurred on this day of the blackout, because wind has some other features. Um, so yes, wind, wind turbines were lost because they didn't um, continue through uh, a low voltage, a very short-lived low voltage period. It was actually repeated, and they're, they're required to stay online, though it was repeated. So as to whether there is some, there is was a problem with how they were set up, and that's been changed. So wind was implicated in that. Um, it can, that can of course be fixed, and has been. Um, the other thing, of course, was the state was depending too much on on um, power from Victoria on that day. So, and then what happened was the the big power line from Victoria called the interconnector went down, and then they couldn't. Um, you know, the system went rapidly unstable. It's the frequency that drops, but it's a technical matter, and that was because uh, of the nature of the. Generators, they had a lot, still a lot of wind on there, and they didn't have enough of their local gas generators. So what they should have done, what normally happens in this sort of situation, is that you load shed. That means you black out some parts of the city or some big industries. You don't go a complete blackout. 
So the way that a lot of it was being portrayed was this was inevitable. Um, and I don't think it was inevitable. And in fact, it had been predicted. So uh, it had been predicted that with a massive growth in wind power in South Australia and the way the system was being operated, that the state may black out. And it did. In fact, it was predicted three days beforehand, but thought when, that there may be a possibility by the Grattan Institute. So that was interesting. And the market operator had also predicted this might happen. So what do you do? Mm. Um, the thing is, you 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 can't just say... I think this is a case of a market has gone mad. Mm. <laughs> the market is running wild. So we don't have an orderly transition to 100% renewables. At the moment, we've got this market that says, well, you, the wind farms are going where they're best um, where they get the best deal, the most favourable treatment uh, from the government, you know, makes them easier and the, where the winds are strongest and so on. And that's South Australia. Now, South Australia is sort of very vulnerable because it's at the end. We need wind everywhere. But we need different types of renewable energy technologies. Hmm. We need the, one of the most, the best would, could be solar thermal because what that would have, if we'd had more solar thermal... Would they, that's the right type of generator to have helped stop the blackouts to give them more time. Mm. So um, that dispatchable storage. Yeah, it's got. Yeah, but but the thing is, it's actually it's 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 more stable. It slows down this rate. You know, the generate. Um, sorry, the frequency drop. I don't want to go into technical issues, but mm. it's um it's the type of generator that would have slowed it down, so they would have had time to do some blackouts when they had a crisis. You know, they just lost the power lines in Victoria, they would have had time. Mm. They didn't have time because wind it wasn't helping to, to maintain this, this frequency. So, so solar thermal actually is a, is a good technology for... Um, it's a bit more like the traditional you know, power stations because um, it offers this, this way of stabilising when you have a crisis. Yeah, I've, uh, I remember so, when the, uh, the Zero Carbon Australia 2020 report was getting put together and it sort of looks at if we build a bunch of these solar thermal plants, the really big ones, the mature ones that will kind of come after the smaller first generations and then the medium-sized generation of things get built, once there's a fully commercialised mature solar thermal industry they'll be using the same type of turbines that are used in traditional coal-fired power stations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like the steam turbines. They're, they're, and they're very good, you know, for stabilising the, the grid. So, yeah, it's, it's just your heat source is different. Instead of burning coal, you're, you're getting it from the sun. Hmm. Of, of course, you need a lot more diversity. It's not just, solar thermal is great, and it can store the solar energy. Um, but of course, in the winter, you you know, <laughs> it's it's best stored for a few days rather than massive periods of time. Hmm. But you need the diversity. Pump to hydro is actually another very good way of storing. Hmm. Um, a lot of people at this, you know, I, I read a lot of stuff from renewables advocates at the time, and they were saying we need more batteries. Well, yes, but. A model that a lot of people were saying was, oh, we'd have households who would have their own battery backup. So when, if there was a blackout, they would be right. Now, who'd be having that? It would be the richer ones. And they're expensive and they're a big use of resources. 
So mm. batteries, unless there's some, you know, some major technological breakthroughs, not only they're expensive, which people focus on, but the use of resources, particularly mm. energy, plus other materials that go into making batteries. It yeah, may, all the you know, it rare will help. It will help. Nasty stuff yeah. goes into uh, making so, that. But it's not a, it's not the main solution. We mm. need a whole diversity of things. But another thing that we really need, mm. which people don't talk about, is that we need to to massively reduce our energy usage. You know, we waste a lot. We waste it, you know, uh, you know, our buildings are so terrible. We use cars instead of public transport. You know, in industry, there's so much inefficiency with energy. Um, and, and so people think higher prices, well, yes, that will help in some cases, but, of course, the poorer households will bear the brunt of that. And it does, industry doesn't necessarily respond to that. Um, so, so we need... Um, no massive government regulations to actually start slashing. You know, we've only really started in a little bit in terms of getting more energy efficient, but we also need to start um, slash waste. So mm. this is another thing: to, if we can reduce our, our the way we use energy, um, and also, you know, we also to be able to shift it around to when the wind blows. Which you can. There are a lot of things that can be shifted. You know, you can think of some household uses. Um, you know, washing clothes, washing dishes is one. Uh, even, you know, air conditioners and refrigerators can be yeah. switched off for a little bit. Of so time. you have like a smart dishwasher and it turns yeah. on when yeah. there's a glut of energy supply. So, so uh, that, that's, um, you know, that's one solution. And, of course, you know, they talk about making hydrogen when a lot of wind and so on. But, but, but that, that, that idea of... of we can't just keep using energy the way we've done, you know, just that, we, that it's there. We expect to be able to switch it on whenever we want because that model is not, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's going to be highly problematic hmm. with, uh, with, with uh, renewable energy. Another thing, of course, I think, is the market model is broken because of the way they were running that market on that day was very high risk. You know, it was going, a huge storm was coming, um, but they were using the market principles. Let's get the cheap power from Victoria, rather than getting, you know, thinking that it was a possibility that they would lose any transmission lines. Um, and so it, it's because because we had this market operating rather than a centrally controlled one um, operator who might have said no on this day. You know, we will be more prudent. Um, or even at any time to be more prudent. Um, mm. so, so that's what I think the whole model of the market is. Mm. And um, um, uh, there's a renewable energy uh, boffin from UNSW, University of New South Wales, Mark Diesendorf, yeah, and he's, uh, mm. he's said um, grid upgrades aren't sexy. People are happy to talk about these mm. lovely wind turbines and steamy solar thermal oh, yeah, plants, yeah. but... No one wants to talk about grid upgrades. And yes, that's right. We need the power lines to go between them. Well, I think this, this relates to this question of the market versus yes. public sector. Uh, yes. Is the market going to build all of these new uh, upgraded grids that will be needed to go to 100% renewables to link all of these diverse wind and solar plants? Well, yeah, this is, I mean, I think the case of South Australia is now looking again at linking with 
uh, South Australia and New South Wales. That was the old uh, Riverlink proposal which got ditched. And I think, you know, the government, that's a role for government. The government said it's got to say we have to have these things. South Australia is very vulnerable um, because it's right at the end of the network. And so it does need intervention to say, look, we can't let the market mean this state is more vulnerable than everyone else because that's really what it is. As I said, this was predicted. And mm. so they need to say, well, let's do this orderly, this transition orderly, so we, South Australia isn't having all the wind turbines there because it's so windy, and that we strengthen South Australia's grid because we they, they deserve to have, you know, not be bearing the brunt of this, which is really what's happening, mm. so, you know, because, because they're not getting that extra investment and, and the changes so that wind power is spread more evenly across the country. Mm, that's yeah, right. Victoria, it's... Victoria could do with a lot more wind power. Yeah, yeah. And our, our grid is a lot more secure because we're connected to three states. Hmm. Um, so we're not going to lose, you know, that, that. Tasmania, of course, was vulnerable a few months ago when it lost its, um, its, uh, the gas link. Um, and the storage has, had run down because of the market, you know, because the snow, the, um, hydro Tasmania has been making so much money during the car, carbon price period. Um, so that was again market principles, meaning one state was very vulnerable. Hmm. So treating this whole thing as a market is, is, it's actually, I think a lot of people are now saying, look, this, we can't go on like this anymore. So we might see some changes to this whole neoliberal agenda around energy and getting back to a lot more control by governments, hmm. which is a good thing. For sure. All right, well, we should uh, probably wrap it up, but uh, thank you very much for having a chat with us. Nice to be with you. Yes, and we'll have to catch up again. And, yes, well, uh, I hope you're writing something about this for Green Left Weekly. So, um, and I'll try and keep it <laughs> not not too technical because I know I like to go into the technical field, but uh, so that people can understand a lot more about what's happening rather than this sort of polarised debate. Yeah, for sure. All right, yeah. I'll look forward to that and yep. keep an eye out on the Green Left Radio Facebook page because we'll. Uh, Post that article up there when uh, when it comes out yep. at greenleft.org.au. Okay. okay, thank you very much, Dane and Jacob. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you. See you soon. See you. Bye. Just listening to an interview with Andrea Bunting um, from Climate Action Moreland. All right, I guess we're going to go move on to some... We've been talking about some local news, but we're going to move on to some of the more recent, exciting, more um, most recent kind of thing that actually this happened just yesterday. Um, it's an, uh, it features an article in the Green Left Weekly, um, as uh, reprinted from the Telesur, um, is basically the UN rejects blockade of Cuba again as US abstains for the first time. Um, the article reads, in a historical step um, towards lifting the blockade on Cuba, um, the United States um, abstained Wednesday in the United Nations General Assembly wrote, unanimously calling for the end of the Cold War measure for the 25th consecutive year. Um, for maybe listeners who um, might not know, since the Cold War there's been an uh, economic blockade on Cuba. Um, the implications of that is basically it prevents, um, prevents Cuba from participating in any sort of economic sort of trade with the US. Is that from what I understand? Basically, it's an economic blockade. Not only that, but uh, it also targets other countries who trade with Cuba. So 
other banks that trade with Cuba end up getting restrictions on doing trade in the U.S. Shipping lines who, um, are, you know, service the Cuban um, freight system, they're then prevented from docking in the U.S. So it's a, it's a wide-reaching embargo which has very damaging consequences for the Cuban economy. Yeah, uh, and I think in response, the Cuba economy has like um, sort of tried to um, go. Um, undertake measures that where they go to sort of more localised ways producing things. Of course, there's still some limitations, especially if they can't. Um, I think there's always that story I heard where um, they, um, if um, where their infrastructure is not because they're unable to say get glass because they don't produce glass on their own. Mm. Um, that's just one kind of example. Um, but I guess in going talking more about um, the article. Um, the United States has always voted against this resolution, um, said U.S. Representative to the U.N. Um, Samantha Power. Today, the United States would stand. Um, for record, only two countries, the U.S. and Israel, abstained from the vote, while 191 of the 90, 193 member states in the Assembly voted in favour of the resolution. Last year, 191 states voted in favour of the resolution with only the United States and Israel voting against. Um, while the US abstention may be a nod to the potential lifting of the blockade, um, Cuba insists that it will not return to capitalism. Um, Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez um, presented the draft revolution to the Assembly, heralding the um, US announcement of a historic abstention as a positive step in the ongoing process of normalising relations between the two countries after decades of resistance by Cuban people. Um, he says here that, you know, there's no doubt that progress has been made. However, the economic, commercial and financial blockade persists, Rodrigo said. It causes harm to the Cuban people and impairs the country's economic development. Mm. Um, and then Rodrigo highlights the fact that um, President Barack Obama have acknowledged the obsolete nature of the blockade and the fact that it is a failed, not essential and unviable policy and a burden to all citizens that harms the Cuban people and plunges the United States into isolation should be lifted. He also um, argued that ending the blockade would give meaning, depth and soundness to the progress towards renewed relations that has been made so far since the end of 2014. Um, speaking to the General Assembly, the representative of the Caribbean community, CARICOM, um, Jamaica, Courtney Rutger, stressed that virtually the entire international community has consistently highlighted that this measure is inconsistent with international law and called for a move to bury the last remnant of the Cold War in the Americas. Mm. Um, so, but um, in the conclusion, really, that um, Cuba, Cuba officials repeatedly insist that ending the blockade is the essential precursor to the full establishment, re-establishment of U.S.-Cuba relations. Um, like in a sense, I'm pretty sure as a United States citizen, you're not even allowed to visit um, Cuba. Is that uh, is that correct? If I'm agreeing? Yeah, I think so. Well, I don't know. Did Obama change it? I think yeah. You you, you basically got to go to Mexico, and then they'll. They'll sort of give you this little insert slip in your passport or something. You, you kind of got to sneak across the border, and if the if the Yanks find out that you've been there, yeah, you're in big trouble. <laughs> and then um, there's a, probably a lot of the um, more conservative um, Cubans have all, all migrated to Miami, who seem to have probably one statistically one of the strongest supports of the economic blockade. Um, 
But then um, I guess another thing that the Cuba has also kind of demanded the US, um, because the US um, still have a naval op- occupied territory in Cuba and are known as uh, Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay. Um, so basically to end the Cold War era migration policy towards um, Cubans and to respect Cuban sovereignty by halting all funding of anti-government groups. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's um, interesting kind of developments there happening and um, sort of US-Cuban relations, and it would be interesting to see kind of what happens next. I guess hmm. it's progress, abstaining from the vote, as opposed to voting against. Hmm. Um, but in terms, I guess, uh, I think pretty sure in fury, um, the United States would have to vote in favour of the resolution for them to actually lift the economic blockade because... Yeah, well, this is it. It's like... The, because the US has imposed them because, you know, yeah. it is just a resolution. It's, it's the same... Not a, it's not a UN-enforced blockade. It's an American blockade. Yep. So it's, it's the whole international community is saying to the US, get rid of this. It's a, it's a horrible thing. It's, it's just completely unfair to the Cuban economy. And, and I mean, the thing to remember is literally the closest country to Cuba is the USA, is Florida. And it's kind of like Palestine and Israel. There's all these borders and it's really damaging for the Palestinian economy to have, and, and for the Israeli economy actually, to have all these huge borders there. And it's, it's the same with this embargo on Cuba. It makes sense for these two really close countries that are just a short gap across the water to be trading with each other. Okay. I guess um, I was going to move on to a story in South Africa, but maybe since we're just on the subject of um, Latin America, um, there's an interesting um, news story of um, ten um, in Argentina. Um, tens of thousands of women across um, Argentina walked off the job. This happened on October the 19th um, to make noise against um, gender violence and economic inequalities. In the, this was um, the first, um, almost in similar to what happened in Iceland recently, um, the, the first quarter women's national strike in the country's history. Um, the strike came in the wake of a brutal gang rape and murder of a teenage girl that has um, reiterated the fight against femicide and gender violence across the continent. Um, protests showed signs with the stories of missing or murdered women chanting, we won't forgive, we won't forget. Um, in the Argentine capital of um, Buenos Aires, uh, women gathered at the main fair to provide public sexual education, classes about preventing sexist violence. There were also football games with all female teams to fight stereotypes about women in sports. Um, in schools and kindergartens, um, the, sc- um, the strike featured sexual education for children, with families welcome to take part. Um, the demonstrations also extended to other parts of Argentina, um, of course, in um, as well uh, in as well as in Chile, Mexico, Uruguay, Paraguay, Peru, Ecuador, Honduras, um, Guatemala, El Salvador, the U.S. and Spain. Um, the um, in terms of where this sort of movement, um, what the leadership is, um, the movement against gender violence in especially Argentina has been spearheaded by Nia Yona Menos, um, translated as "Not One More." Collective um, protesters wore black as a symbol of collective mourning over the gang rape and killing of 16-year-old Lucia Perez. Um, the strike also emphasised, aimed to emphasise the crucial war role of women in the country's economy and highlight the fact that women had been the first victims of the huge um, public sector layoffs carried out by the right-wing administration of President Marco Marchi. 
um, organisers um, highlighted the link that makes poor and disadvantaged women more vulnerable to gender and sexual violence, including human trafficking. Um, Maria um, Fluencia Alakes um, um, told, um, we are challenging the traditional meaning of a, a strike. Um, behind femicides, there's economic fang- framework that makes women more vulnerable to violence. Um, the mobilisation went viral on social media and um, after she was forcibly taken um, from her school, three suspects had been arrested. Um, and, of course, jailed Argentine Indigenous leader um, Malago Salaro, dubbed the first political prisoner of Marcus administration, wrote an open letter addressed to the women of the country, thanking them for taking action to defend women's rights. Um, and, of course, um, in the con- in historical context, um, according to data from Human Rights Group, a woman in Argentina dies every 30 hours from domestic violence. Since 2008, um, 1,808 women have been violently killed in the country. Um, so that's kind of like a developing um, movement um, happening in Argentina, and it's definitely a, a fantastic kind of, though not a very tragic thing in response to a very tragic event, but it's great to see that um, there's sort of this collective sort of um, rising up in response, and and it's very and it's a very strong kind of politics behind it as well. Yeah, that's that's epic. Really strong women's movement over there. Okay, um, guess um, what? We play a quick announcement, and then we can move on to our ne- another story um, for an actually mother more exciting development happening internationally. All right. You're back. It's Green Left Radio, Friday the 28th of October. Um, yeah, get right. ready for the weekend. Yeah, so um, just before I was talking about sort of the growing kind of feminist um, movement in Argentina and the sort of mass mobilisations um, happening in response to um, gender violence and economic inequalities, um, guess what's um, moving on to um, the other side of the continent. Um, this is a featured article in the international international section of Green Left Weekly. Um, it's um, written by um, a socialist um, South African activist um, in uh, Ashley um, Fata. Um, and here he reports on um, the student um, the student movement, um, the growing student movement that is happening in South Africa. Um, basically, um, it's a, around a campaign that fees must fall um, students at universities across South Africa have been demonstrating for the complete removal of university fees for poor students. Um, basic um, in these fresh round of protests, students are taking action at universities across six provinces. Um, the protests erupted um, when Blade um, Nizamande, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, he's the minister responsible for higher education, um, probably like a South African version of Christopher Pine, except Christopher <laughs> Pine is not um, uh, the minister for education anymore. Uh, he he basically um, announced that it will be left to indi- individual universities to turn fee rises for 2017. Um, mm-hmm. That's almost like privatisation, basically a word for privatisation, yeah. and almost similar to actually going back to the Christopher Pine peril hmm. to sort of fee degradation where you basically allow... And it's, it's still an ANC government in South Africa, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Well, since... Well, you could probably argue, well, my personal opinion is the ANC has gone far gone from its radical days. Well, clearly it, so. It's basically what you would 
pretty much equivalent to the Labor Party mm. in um, in Australia or or and Democrats in America. Well, of course, the Democrats in the United States, my opinion, is they never had a radical history like the ANC did. Um, and I remember at a South African political forum um, that, from as reported, um, the ANC kind of like depend on this sort of um, to legitimise kind of like what they, they kind of rely on this radical image of, you know, use the radical imagery of Nelson Mandela. Kind of similar to, it would be kind of similar to seeing like um, a very conservative right-wing government using imagery of Che Guevara hmm. um, to sort of, you know, where radical repercussions. Um, but I guess um, going back to the story, um, students were at least hoping for no free rise. Had that been the case, the protest might not have erupted. However, the government has allowed administrations to raise fees by up to 8% at a time when students already cannot afford to go to university. Um, in response, there's been some mass protests. Um, the proposed fee hikes um, in response, students had in South Africa has began by organising mass meetings on campuses. Um, there was a series of sit-ins and meetings, um, disrupted lectures, barricades were erected in some campuses. Um, what's um, most of this is um, this is something you know you're not seeing really in the student movement in Australia, but you know response from the university management and police has been vicious. Um, they're determined um, there will be no rerun of last year's campaign, which caught them flat-footed. Um, faced with the re-emergence of campus protests, um, university managers have called in private, private security companies and police to disrupt the student mass meetings. Um, one of the private security com- corporations is Renta Scola. Um, it employs former special operations soldiers of the apartheid military. Um, they hunted and murdered, um, for history's sake, um, anti-apartheid activists in the 1980s. Um, they unleashed a wave of terror. They've also recently, these, um, this private security firm um, also unleashed a reign of terror in the mining community during a workers' strike some years ago. Um, I think there's actually a documentary. Ed, Ed Marikino. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's horrible. Um, now they've already been, in terms of the repression that's happening, um, they've already been sent onto campus as brutalised students. Um, already what's happened is a student has been shot through the fire in um, John Hansenberg, allegedly by a private security guard. Um, the police have used tear gas, rock bullets and water cannons. They wear body armour and wave loaded guns at protesters. In one incident, police fired a rubber bullet blank, point blank into the face of a priest who was sheltering students inside his church in the neighbourhood of Wits University. Um, soldiers have also been deployed to the University of the Free State to assist police. They use automatic rifles. Um, the mainstream media have not reported this. I guess um, on Octo- on when hap- and other things have happened is on October 10, um, a students at Wits University tried to use the main hall for a meeting. Police armoured car, cars and a water cannon charged at them. Heavily armed officers threw stun grenades into the crowd and opened fire with rubber bullets. Um, tear gas was also fired into the university lecture to um, clear buildings. So kind of like this image of this is like basically in response to sort of this mass sort of protests and um, sort of collective organisation by students in South Africa, it's basically... The South African university horse has basically almost become uh, a war stone, a war yeah, zone. <laughs> really militarised response, like the South um, African version of the Contras of well, the Stasi. Well, in addition to sort of the police repression, um, 
the the university administrations have like imposed a 10 p.m. curfew on the halls of residence and sent police and security forces into the buildings in which they terrorise students. So not only that, um, the, the university administration are clearly um, scared of what of the response from students. Mm. I guess um, in res- the government's res- kind of response is um, the South African current president Jacob Zuma has announced a commission of inquiry into the issue of free education. It is due to report by next July. Um, But really, um, Ashley here writes that um, it is clear that the main item on the agenda is the further securitisation of the campuses. Um, Members of the commission include the government ministers responsible for the prisons, police, army and intelligence services, which is... It's clearly that they're not going to make any... So, of course, if this was really a genuine kind of left-wing government in charge, I think the first response would be to condemn the police and to do everything kind of in the state power to stop hmm. these repression from happening. Why would you include the police into an inquiry about making higher education free? Like, Since when have the police had anything to bring to the table about higher education policy? Yeah, that's <laughs> good. Um, is also the Minister of Finance, um, this is what's even more interesting, the one with the capacity to actually increase university funding is actually not a member of this inquiry that's taking place. Um, we do not um, need, and as he writes here, we do not need to wait for the Commission's findings. The police action in Brownford, um, Fontaine and the trumped-up charges against students show how the government is already responding. Um, and the message from the university administration, um, police and government is shillingly clear. This, their violence is going to escalate. I guess um, to counter this, um, though this is in awe in the history, I think we'll probably find out more developments um, in another article following this. Mm. Um, students have organised a week of action um, starting on October 17th, um, which then accumulated in a march to the Union buildings um, in Pretoria on October 20th. Um, I guess in terms of... Um, They've been getting um, more broader support. Trade unions and other groups of organised workers have passed motions of support for the students and are discussing on how they might assist. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty fast, very interesting news. It mm. um, seems that the, the student movement is so much more ahead than the student movement in, say, Australia. Um, in terms of like the amount of collective course, I don't think Australia will probably ever get to a state where we'll probably have police... Um, invading um, what, such high rates of militarised um, police. So there is something well, to be said. it's funny you should say that because the um, Sydney College for the Arts yep. occupation, they just got booted out by the cops yep. after 65 days. But um, I guess the level of repression wasn't as intense yeah, yeah, yeah. as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does, but there are parallels that can be made from the Australian situa- um, situation. Um, hmm. Well, probably, we'll, um, that's one sort of story where I almost out of time that I forgot to quote. But yeah, that in terms of um, the SCA occupation has ended um, so, um, after, I think, it's probably the longest student occupation in history, actually. Mm. Um, we've spoken with Rachel and with Bronte previously about the Sydney College for the Arts and yeah. the campaign to keep that open. But um, I guess the um, news, uh, the positive news um, out of that I uh, can bring you is that the, pro- um, the campaign still goes on and there's been actually a rally, uh, a post-occupation rally, uh, and there's, uh, I think they're, they're not giving up the fight yet. Um, mm. So um, stay tuned for more updates on that news story. Yeah, we can... Okay. All right, well, we should uh, have a little announcement and then we'll get to the activist calendar and then we're going to bring you another piece of archive audio 
at the moment we're celebrating 40 years of 3CR and yeah playing a bunch of interesting uh, archive audio so we've got that coming up shortly after the activist calendar In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. All right. Okay. You're on 3CR. We're going to zip through the uh, activist calendar for the week and right. then get you some archive audio. Okay. I guess um, there's two events um, actually happening um, today. Um, there's a public meeting in Brunswick Library um, when uh, when Australians said no to the war, um, featuring Coburg resident um, Professor Michael Hamill-Green will be the speaker. Um, that is Friday tonight at 6 p.m. at the Brunswick Library. Um, another thing also happening at the exact same time, um, I'm not sure if you actually have to make bookings, um, but m- people might know um, Anit, um, about Thomas Piketty, who recently wrote a book, Capital in the 21st Century, talking about inequality and um, how it's um, in, in, in capitalism. And so, yep, it's happening at 6pm at the Melbourne Town Hall. Um, I would quickly I would search up an evening with Thomas Piketty in Google, um, right in Monash University, just to find out about bookings. It's a free event. Um, just make sure you make a booking. But I'm fairly sure should, there should still be spots available. Um, I guess next thing that's happening is um, there'll be a rally happening um, this Saturday. Um, not, ne- not this Saturday, next Saturday. Um, it's time. Bring them here. Close the camps. Permanent protection now. Um, it's organised by Refugee Action Collective and happening at... Um, and happening at the State Library. Um, also happening this weekend will be a conference um, organised by LASNET, and they'll quickly, this is probably the last announcement, just quickly get the details. It's, um, sorry, it's in, it's about um, Pacific Popular Grassroots Movements and Indigenous, and it's organised by LASNET. That's happening all day on Saturday and Sunday, and that's in the RMIT Building 56. Um, on Queen One One Fifteen Queensbury Street, Carlton. Yeah, cool. All right. So here is some archive audio. It's uh, a memorial about John Cummins, the CFMEU slash Builders Labourers activist, and also a section about Mark Grook, the Aboriginal game with uh, striking similarities to AFL. All right. We will catch you next week. You've been listening to Green Life Radio. This is 3CR. And thanks for listening. 3CR's turned 40. And from Monday, 10th of October, right through to Saturday, 19th of November, we're celebrating. Join us on 3CR Breakfast from 8 until 8.30am, Monday to Saturday, as we delve into our rich 3CR archive and bring you half an hour of historic gems. So start your day with the sounds that built a station. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio.
Union Line is the program of the Food Preservers Union of Australia, and it's with you now from 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne. We're right on the dot uh, at 6.30 this morning. Fine today for most of the day. Could be a couple of brief showers around. It will be cool, cloudy periods, and a moderate west to northwest wind going up to 15 degrees. <laughs> In the program today, we'll be hearing about the BLF statements by Mr Justice Ledecky yesterday, who seems to uh, have uh, run into complications over the fact that uh, his own uh, action in the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission in the BLF registration case uh, didn't succeed, and he's dealing with uh, a real union uh, representing real workers uh, and uh, teasing out real issues in the building industry. There'll be other news, including news of the election campaign and what progressive and left groups are doing. But first, the issue of food irradiation. I suppose that some people say that that's an issue really that goes on and on. The Food Preservers Union is heavily involved. The Federal Research Officer, Mark Lawrence, has put together quite a campaign on it. And there's a very important campaign also being run by a Victorian committee. Some may have seen it as a setback when the Australian Consumers Association, in a government-funded report, recommended that irradiation be accepted in some highly controlled circumstances. Margo Foster is speaking with Mark Lawrence. Mark, would you be able to tell us a bit about the process of food irradiation? What's involved is basically the bombarding of food with very large amounts of radiation. The standard which has been proposed for Australia by the National Health and Medical Research Council is equivalent to between 10 and 20 million chest X-ray equivalents. Um, so that uh, very high energy amount of radiation uh, is designed to kill uh, a large amount of bugs and bacteria in food. And the, uh, the process works with a, a radioactive source which uh, in Australia, there are irradiation facilities treating medical and other scientific equipment at the moment. They all use cobalt-60. Uh, large rods of cobalt-60 are brought out of a shielding pond of water into uh, a, a hot room, and food is uh, rotated around the source on a conveyor belt. Right, well, what's your response to the government report on food irradiation, which came out a couple of weeks ago? The report was commissioned by the government. It was actually conducted by the Australian Consumers Association. The Campaign for Nuclear Free Food is not happy with the report. We're not happy with the process in particular. The, uh, the main reason for that being that a panel of experts was assembled by the Australian Consumers Association and of those five people, three of them had previously advised the National Health and Medical Research Council uh, in their first finding to allow the process. So we don't view it as an independent inquiry. Uh, the majority of, of scientific opinion on that inquiry had previously been involved in, in an earlier uh, quasi-government decision and so we, uh, we reject the basis of that whole inquiry. We also think it was uh, inadequate for the government to give $90,000 and only six months to uh, an organisation to, to run such an inquiry. Uh, having said that, the report itself, whilst it uh, does give a somewhat of a go-ahead to food irradiation, it places many qualifications on the process. 
And, for example, whereas the National Health and Medical Research Council previously had recommended that uh, a range of foods, quite a wide range of foods, could be subject to up to 10 kilogram of radiation, the Consumers Association report would require uh, companies wishing to irradiate foods to apply for each different type of food to be uh, irradiated. They would each be subject to a, a separate uh, test and would have specific doses required of them. There are many qualifications in the report uh, which don't give the proponents of food irradiation a lot to hang their hat on. But nevertheless, we are very disappointed that the uh, Consumers Association report didn't recommend a uh, complete ban on food irradiation, as uh, many organisations throughout the world have recently, such as the European Parliament, the British uh, Food and Drug, uh, sorry, Food and Beverage uh, Federation, the employer body in Britain, the British Institute of Environmental Health Officers, and uh, even as far as the British Medical Association. Right, well, who are the people that uh, want food irradiation? A very small group of people. The most uh, vociferous proponents of it are in Vienna, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and their uh, various national affiliates, such as the uh, Australian Nuclear and Scientific Organisation, formerly the Atomic Energy Commission. Looking at the, the documents and the history of the the campaign which those people have waged to get food irradiation or to try and get it legalised in Australia, you find the hand of the nuclear industry very much on the steering wheel. Mark Lawrence, he was speaking with Marco Foster. Mark is the Federal Research Officer of the Food Preservers Union of Australia. There's uh, been some rather odd statements from Mr Justice uh, Terry Ledecky in the context of arbitration commissions about hearing of bans on two building jobs in the city and some snide remarks about our friends uh, in the Australian Building and Construction Employees and Builders Labourers Federation. The great difficulty that Mr Ledecky seems to have and people like uh, Steve Crabb, the Victorian Labour Minister and Ralph Willis, the Federal Labour Minister, is that they failed in their attempt to stamp out uh, the BLF. Now, Mr Ledecky is making some quite uh, off-hand uh, remarks which suggest that there might be something wrong with where the BLF uh, is getting its financial resources. It's a little bit rich coming from somebody who conducted such a judicial and personal travesty in uh, the hearing for deregistration uh, of the BLF and who obviously was in close collaboration with the ministers I've just mentioned about the content of his judgment. So much for the independence of Mr Ledecky or the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission. In fact, while accusations are being made against the BLF, one has to note a whole pattern of legal attack uh, on the union and the way that it was done. The framing uh, of Norm Gallagher, the use of civil processes to settle personal scores, uh, such as uh, Mr Crabbe's contempt action, against uh, Norm Gallagher for making uh, comments uh, about the quality of Mr Ledecky's uh, judgment. Also, um, the, the Premier, Mr Kane, has had dragged up a, a very old prosecution against uh, our BLF Health and Safety Officer uh, Brian Boyd. Uh, it goes back to about 1983. The matter is up uh, in the courts uh, next week. That's subject to say we can't comment on it, apart from the fact that the prosecution uh, has been uh, brought forward. John Cummins is an organiser of the Australian Building and Construction Employees and uh, he also has suffered because uh, 
the Labor Minister, uh, Steve Crabb, uh, directly from the management of uh, Costain, solicited uh, a civil prosecution uh, from Costain against uh, John Cummins. These uh, are all pretty nasty areas, and we'll probably hear more of them, but... Uh, the state government is certainly not going to get away with uh, doing anything uh, like sequestering the assets of the BLF, which is provided for in the derecognition uh, bill. Mr Kane promised it wouldn't be gazetted. Characteristically, he's repudiated that promise to the trade union movement. Uh, it uh, was uh, gazetted, uh, but uh, they can't uh, succeed. On this issue, John Cummins. John, uh, I think now that the uh, state government has almost given up the story that the BLF is dead, it's got to deal with the reality that uh, it's alive, and I understand they're moving in some heavy legal guns, civilly and criminally, to deal with that situation. You're listening to 3CR's 40 Days of Radical Radio Special, celebrating 3CR's 40 fabulous years of community radio. Yeah, we've, uh, at, the, uh, at the moment, uh, really because of the fragility of the attack on us and the, the, the current situation in the, the building industry with the award campaign and the like, we're having more police attention perhaps now, uh, our organising officials going on to the jobs to service the members than ever before. In the and there's a revival of a very old uh, prosecution uh, against uh, Brian Boyd over the alleged consequences of a demonstration at the Liberal Party offices some years ago. Yeah, that's right. They've dusted off all the charges that were pending that uh, have uh, been uh, in the signy die basket. They've dusted them all off and uh, they're bringing them on as soon as they can. And in fact, they have now briefed their fourth barrister and placed him on a retainer and they're specifically to deal with BLF prosecution. So it's another indication of our taxes at work. But... Uh, that's how desperate they are at uh, this point in time. And Is it regarded as a special matter in police administration too? I think that the, the police are uh, appalled by what's going on. I mean, uh, they find it very hard to uh, get any money out of the government and they see that uh, uh, for the BLF it uh, does appear to be the sky's the limit. And uh, that's uh, from talking to just uh, police that we deal with, that uh, we have... Uh, all too much to do with these days, but uh, that's uh, their um, view, state of view anyway. But uh, I just think that, that they really are turning up the uh, the pressure, and uh, they've got good reason to, because uh, the uh, the as I said before, the, there's a very fragile situation for them at the moment because the the membership that was conscripted a, a bucking, that the uh, EI unions are. Uh, uh, got a very grave credibility problem because of the, the sellouts that are going on. And indeed it gets past that because uh, members see the conditions on the sites and uh, they all know the deterioration. Uh, they don't listen to, to us or to the other unions. They see it for themselves. And uh, I think the people are starting to, uh, on the jobs, uh, blokes on the jobs are starting to appreciate the real costs of uh, the attack on the Federation and indeed uh, to a lesser degree of course uh, the attack on the plumbers union so that these sorts of things are starting to be reflected on the jobs the employers uh, as is their habit are starting to try and take up the slack and uh, put the screws on and uh, that's leading to uh, the situation we've got in the industry at the moment yeah, well, you could almost say, too, that it uh, includes uh, restraints on uh, communities. If you want to uh, find a copy, you go to a building site because uh, 
with this light rail project uh, in uh, the port side, uh, 40 million bucks for a project that the people in the area definitely don't want. Uh, they're also working under railway security coppers. I think they're members of the ARU actually that are doing that job, even though it's sort of basically a building and labouring job. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, the... <laughs> It's, it's just the, the double standards all over again. I was talking to, I got arrested uh, on one of the sites a, a week or so ago, and I was talking to the inspector in charge of this particular station. He told me he was in charge of what was supposed to be 120 police, and he was down to 80, and he was bemoaning that fact. But uh, he said, uh, for you blokes, whenever there's a phone call, he said, I've just got to pull them from everywhere, and he was pulling them off point duty and the, the, the like. Uh, to get as many of them that uh, they thought was needed. We had a couple of blokes on the picket line out at Northland and they, they were uh, being attended by 20 coppers ahead. <laughs> I mean, that's, as I said before, that's how taxes at work and that really does show you the, just the, the absolute desperation. We've had the, the, uh, the fire bombings of now two of our buildings in the state, the ACT branch and the uh, Perth branch of the Federation and We've had the attempted burglary of uh, the Harry Dano Hall where the, uh, like, there must have been a couple of decent-sized people involved because the, the ceiling collapsed under the weight of them. And a lot of uh, bosses' money or government money or somebody's money put behind destabilising the New South Wales branch too. That's right. That's, uh, it does appear that our taxes at work at the sky's the limit. I mean, we've got a, a recent uh, situation now where Costains have taken out some um, damages uh, prosecutions on on myself, on one of the organisers. Yeah, now, this is a, a common law, uh, Sue, against you for uh, damages. They're alleging damage resulting from uh, a slowing down or cessation of some sorts of building operations on their project because of a BLF presence. Yeah, they're blaming all the industrial disputes on that site since November of last year under me. And uh, they've taken out that prosecution in the Supreme Court and they've got an interim order now. Again, it's an interesting comment on a union that doesn't exist. That's right. Uh, they've got the interim order, and uh, I think that uh, there's not too many. I mean, I think Mr. Crabb perhaps may be the only one that really does seek to try to promote that. The, the worst-kept secret in the industry at the moment is that the Federation's alive and well and uh, responsible for... Uh, and, and indications are that uh, not likely to go away for uh, the foreseeable future. You're listening to 3CR's 40 Days of Radical Radio Special, celebrating 3CR's 40 fabulous years of community radio. John Cummins, organiser of the Australian Building and Construction Employees and Builders Labourers Federation. When uh, anybody approaches you and says, will you rejoin the Labour Party or work for the Labour Party in this election campaign, just do one thing, remember the BLF. Quarter to seven from 3CR Community Radio Union Line, the program of the Food Preservers uh, Union. Next, uh, we'll have a look at what's been going on in the union in the past week with Dennis Evans, organiser. Margot Foster is talking to him. Dennis, can you say what's been happening around the traps this week? Well, it's been an unusual week. It's been, a, it's been fairly hectic also. Uh, it started off um, uh, early, early this week uh, with the dismissal of one of our members at McCain's in Ballarat. Uh, he was dismissed for allegedly, and I use that word uh, 
uh, rigidly, uh, allegedly um, relieving himself up against the wall uh, inside the factory. Um, the foreman claims that he caught him in the act of uh, relieving himself but uh, didn't stop him. Uh, the company then investigated and dismissed the member. Um, me and David uh, attended the plant the next day to hold stop work meetings to see if there was any support for the guy and uh, um, our members felt that uh, he really hadn't been caught in the act of relieving himself against the wall. And, uh, and if he had of, the, the only reason he would have done it was, was because that he couldn't get relieved by anybody else. And by that I mean nobody else would, uh, there wouldn't be a supervisor to come and take his job while he was actually able to go to the toilet. So following stop work meetings, it was overwhelmingly decided by our members that, that uh, the most, uh, the, the guy should get, uh, should have been a warning. Um, um, and we put that to the company and uh, if it wasn't forthcoming uh, the first uh, the first lot of action that the members were prepared prepared to take was to um, place a ban on overtime um, that made the company see their, see their way clear to um, to reinstating uh, the dismissed employee Right, so it all worked out well for him? Well it worked out well because uh, it was a sort of comical situation where we had uh, where we had the uh, production manager um, alleging that um, that uh, the guy had relieved himself into potatoes, into the potatoes themselves. Now, obviously, obviously, the uh, personnel uh, officer uh, almost died when he heard the uh, factory manager do that because we asked him, well, what happened to the potatoes if he, if he relieved himself into them? And the, uh, the production manager said that they processed them. So. Oh, God, bad publicity. Oh, yes, very bad, very bad. <laughs> and it's not getting any better either. Well, on the subject of food, what's the follow-up on the Fortune Foods issue? Well, I've spoken to the manager of Fortune Foods and uh, as I mentioned last Saturday, um, the DI has gone through there. They've issued orders, uh, about 25 orders to clean up the factory. Um, that has been done. Um, at, least the, at least the conditions um, where the women were eating in the toilet and whatever uh, have been changed uh, and that's a step forward. Plus we also found out that uh, despite an agreement with the, uh, uh, with the employer, um, that uh, the people weren't members of the union. So we've actually picked up 15 members and improved their conditions at the same time. So it's been very good. John Sevens, organiser of the Food Preservers uh, Union uh, Victorian branch. 12 to 7 from Union Line, the Food Preservers program. Uh, we move on now to the issue of uh, industrial legislation. Three CRs turn 40, and from Monday 10th of October right through to Saturday 19th of November, we're celebrating. Join us on 3CR Breakfast from 8 until 8.30am, Monday to Saturday, as we delve into our rich 3CR archive and bring you half an hour of historic gems. So start your day with the sounds that built a station. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio. It's one thing to be a link in a chain. It's another thing to start a chain of one's own. There's no consensus regarding the exact origins of Australian rules football. One theory is that it was inspired by the Aboriginal game Mangrook. Supporters of this view point out that the two games are conceptually similar, whilst the term mark is similar to the Aboriginal word mumaki, also meaning to catch. An early description of Mangrook does indeed bear resemblance to Australian football today. 
If one were to interpret football as an evolution of Marngrook, then with 40,000 years of history, it is the longest tradition in any world sport. Now talk about the Sydney Swans AFL team facing a cash crisis this season have overshadowed and taken the focus away from a very important AFL match to be played between the Sydney Swans and the Essendon Bombers. It's the Mangrook Cup, played in honour of the immense contribution Indigenous AFL players have made to Aussie rules and the wider sporting community. This is the second year of its inception. Now playing like a girl caught up with Bree McCauley. Noongar woman from New South Wales and our boundary reporter to talk about the Mangrook pre-game celebrations within the Indigenous community up in Sydney. We also go on to talk about Indigenous women's voices reporting within sports media today. You're listening to Playing Like a Girl, 8.55 on the AM dial and uh, that game last night, it was a crushing defeat to the Sydney Swans by 54 points. Cheer, cheer the red and the white. Please stay tuned for more of Playing Like a Girl. Let's talk footy, let's talk AFL rules, let's talk Marngrook. Celebrations in Sydney this weekend, very exciting. Yes, yes indeed, it's been a huge build-up for this game this week. Unfortunately, a lot of the news out of Sydney has been about the Swans financial dramas, which has kind of overshadowed the celebrations, but there's still lots of celebrations going on prior to the game. This game, it was first played last year for the Marngrook Cup, I believe. Yeah, that's correct. Between Sydney and Essendon. Yep, that's right. Tell us about some of the celebrations that are going on up in Sydney, despite the Sydney Swans financing woes. Well, all the celebrations and entertainment start at 4pm, and they start at Overflow Park and Sydney Olympic Park, which are all based out at the Sydney Olympic Centre. There's going to be heaps of excellent things happening. We've got a spectacular sea of hands happening. We've got didgeridoo workshops, smoke ceremonies, face painting and storytelling. We've got heaps of food markets. Indigenous photographic exhibitions. We've also got an AFL uh, clinic happening with Michael Long. So all you kids, you've got to get out there and have a kick with Longy. It'll be fantastic. Is it there any cost involved for people to come along to, to celebrate the Mangrel Cup before the actual game? Uh, no. I mean, all the, all the activities and the entertainment are free. The New South Wales Sport and Recreation Department has put on a bus, which leaves at various locations around... Sydney, the bus is free and it'll take you to and from the game and all, yeah, all the festivities are free. It really seems to be engendering, you know, community spirit, especially from the Indigenous community. Oh, absolutely. AFL really has that special connection to the Indigenous culture. It really does bring uh, the Aboriginal community together and I can say that the kids love nothing better than going out and seeing their Indigenous heroes play the sport that they love. Yeah, well, speaking of Indigenous heroes, who's your favourite Indigenous sportswoman? Or who are some of the, the women who have inspired you? Yvonne Goolagong, for sure. She was my childhood idol. Uh, she was, her older biography was one of the first books I ever picked up and actually read. And uh, Cathy Freeman. Yeah, I love Cathy and I love everything that she stands for. And she's such a sporting inspiration for all us women out there. Yeah, well, both um, incredible ambassadors for their 
respective sports being tennis and athletics and, and running. We had on the show last week Nova Paris, which we were very proud to have and, and come speak, and she's obviously represented Australia in two different things, hockey and in athletics as well. But you've also been uh, a sports person. You've also played AFL. Tell us a bit, little bit about that. Oh, yeah, I've had, I've had, uh, used to play for uh, my high school and, um, yeah, had a little run with uh, a local club that, you know, around my area and that, and I was the only girl that used to play. So, yeah, and I had uh, number 17 on my back for Morris Rioli, who was my sporting, AFL sporting hero. Uh, so, Richmond. Yeah. <laughs> Go the Tigers, eh? Oh, yeah, I'm a Tigers fan. So I heard from a couple of friends from our, from that uh, one, that other AFL show we had on 3CR, Marngrook. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, it's hard enough to see famous Indigenous sports men on shows and talking in the media, you know, like the footy show and all that sort of thing. You hardly ever see any kind of Indigenous representation there. But it must be, you know, even less so when you think about Indigenous women in the media giving oh, their absolutely. opinions. absolutely. I mean, it's hard enough for, you know, any kind of women to get recognition in this you know, day and age, but Indigenous women, it's even harder, and that's why we have to respect and, you know, that's why we idolise our Indigenous sporting women even more so, I think, because, you know, it's such a mountain to climb for women like, you know, Nova Paris and Kathy and Yvonne Goolagong, and, yeah, so I just really, I'm in awe of them and what they've achieved, and, and it is really hard, and, you know, we, we look up to them. No offence to these other women who are, you know, do have a voice in, in sport at the moment. That's people like Christy Malthouse. There's Carolyn Wilson, who's on the television. Joanna Griggs, she covers tennis, athletics, and she's a former swimmer. There's another one, Liz Ellis, Australian yep. netball team captain. She's also been a spokesperson. Nicole Stevenson for the swimming as well. But imagine this. Imagine crossing, you know, on AFL Live on television, you know, whatever channel it is. Now we're going to cross live to Bree McCauley, boundary rider and Noongar woman from New South Wales, giving her in-depth perspective of the game live from the MCG. <laughs> I know, it doesn't happen and I wish it would because it's like my dream job. While you don't actually work in, in the sporting industry, you have a, an incredible enthusiasm for, for women's sport and in particular, I know, AFL. You've written some articles, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I've just started writing and, you know, I've sent... I've just wanted to send some of my material out there and, you know, see if I can get recognised and see if someone, you know, had any constructive feedback that I can take on board and learn from. So, yeah, I mean, I do have a passion for AFL. It's something that I really enjoy. It's something I've been brought up with. And, you know, I can put all my energy into that and it's, I love doing it and I would love a job that, you know, I was really passionate about and really enjoyed. There's not many avenues for Indigenous women to be able to put their opinion across in the media? Yeah, I would probably agree with that. There probably isn't. And, you know, it just makes it even harder to get recognised when there aren't that many avenues. And when you do see women of the likes of Christy Malthouse, Carolyn Wilson, who are obviously, you know, have a journalist background, and good luck to them. But, I mean, it would be great to be extended an invitation even to learn from them to learn something and we would be able to forge through those avenues and create our own avenues. You should be congratulated because there's nothing like your show up here in Sydney. There's nothing like it. And well, we hope to be able to reach across the states and go interstate yeah. and spread the message more because 
there's a lot of talent out there in women's sport through not just AFL but through grassroots organisations. There's women behind the scenes everywhere. Absolutely, yeah. I agree 100%. I know Margaret got your tips. Who are you tipping this weekend for I the literally, Tanya, I literally tossed a coin and it ended up the Swannies. Oh, so oh. I'm going the Swannies. Cheer, cheer, the red and the, the white. white. Exactly. <laughs> and before we go, I just want to tell all your listeners to donate to 3CR because it's a great community radio station, especially to Playing Like a Girl. We need all you women on board and get behind Playing Like a Girl because it's, it's original, it's fun and everybody should be involved.